you take your seat this evening. We're diving back in and making wonderful progress through the book of Genesis, the last part, the last 13, 14 chapters, of the life of the patriarch Joseph, the number one Old Testament character who most resembles Jesus, our Lord. Lots of gospel truths here in the last 13 chapters. And so... I open with this question. Have you ever had the opportunity to meet somebody really important, like a government official, a celebrity, or someone who's famous? I remember that uh, President Reagan used to like to host ordinary citizens. He'd invite them to the White House, send a presidential limousine uh, there to pick them up, They'd be ushered into the Oval Office, past all the decked out Marines uh, who were lining the halls and guarding all the entrances. The visitors to the Oval Office always are schooled on proper decorum before you meet the leader of the free world. Uh, You know, they give you a little bit of a script, things you can say, things you shouldn't say. And that's exactly what we see going on here in Genesis 47 as we pick up the story, Joseph. And uh, the story's winding down. Next week will be uh, our conclusion of the study. But here now, it's time for Joseph's brothers and father to meet the king of Egypt, the pharaoh himself. They are now immigrating Uh, to Egypt from Canaan, that's Israel's name before uh, it is officially called Israel, and uh, they are immigrating to Egypt to find relief, of course, from that global famine that's devastated the land, and Egypt is the only place you're going to find life-saving food, and it's from Joseph's hand and Joseph's hand alone that anybody suffering is going to find relief. Well, how blessed are these who are related to Joseph? They have an end, don't they, in this devastating time. Their little brother, the one they hated, tried to kill, had him kidnapped, shipped off to Egypt, where God intervened and promoted him to the position that he's in now, prime minister. Uh, Now, after confessing their sin and repenting, they have a friend in high places, don't they? Their kid brother turns out to be equal to Pharaoh in power, authority, and honor. And at their brother's invitation and Pharaoh's blessing, the family's relocating to Cairo uh, and going to uh, escape certain death from starvation. And as they're settling now into their new homes, it's time for Joseph to be Uh, taking his brothers and present the brothers and his father to Pharaoh, uh, the Pharaoh he faithfully serves. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 47. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers, with their flocks and their herds and everything they own, just like we planned, and thank you for your great provision for that, have come from the land of Canaan. They're now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers, presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, what's your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we have come to live here a while because the famine is so severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. 
Pharaoh said to Joseph, to Joseph, Pharaoh turns and talks to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. This is a little odd, but it's for a reason. And the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. We'll pause here. Note takers, the brothers meet Pharaoh. Now they've been prepared. Joseph uh, with took great pains, you'll recall last chapter, to give them a sort of script. And, and they, they stuck to it. Uh, what to say, what not to say, and why. Alan Ross, in his commentary on Genesis, uh, heads up his first section of this chapter with these words, it is not wise to offend those in authority. <laughs> it's just a no-brainer, you know, but many don't take that wisdom to heart. So Joseph's wise. And he knows that his brothers can be a bit of uh, knuckleheads at times. And so he, he lowers the risk of a disaster, a social disaster, uh, by choosing five of them, probably the more dependable ones in verse 2. Uh, as I'm saying, it lowers the risk of misstatements or inappropriate behavior. You know, we can be sure Joseph knows which brothers are least likely to crack a joke or put their foot in their mouth, right? You know, hey, Pharaoh, got a joke for you. Why, why was Pharaoh boastful? Because he thinks he's the best. He thinks. He thinks pyramids, the Sphinx. Uh, have your wife explain it to you on the way home. All right. Well, that's what one of them might have said if there were anything like me. Probably I would have been one of the brothers left out of the room. So, okay. Just like Joseph knew he would, Pharaoh asked, so what do you guys do? I said, we're shepherds. We come from a long line of shepherds, and that's for a reason they say that. And we'd like to serve you in Goshen. Perfect. Just as Joseph coached them. You know, uh, so he says, stress that you're shepherds, because Egyptians really aren't fond of shepherds. It's a class thing. And they'll be happy to provide us some breathing room, you see. And that's, Joseph knows that God has promised to make them into a great nation. And so that will serve the purpose exactly there to kind of keep the boundary lines between the worldly Egyptians and God's messianic line there. And so I love the line, we come from a long line of shepherds. That was put in there too on purpose because we're not just nomadic vagabonds, uh, some troublemaking gypsies who've wandered in. We've got nothing better to do, so we take care of some sheep. No, we've been doing this from generation to generation. This is the vocation passed on from our forefathers. It's what we do and what we only do. Now, why do they say that? Because Pharaoh might be tempted to draw them into some kind of new venture, not in the chosen people's best interest or not in God's best interest for his chosen people. You know, hey, I could use a few of you living in Cairo with me. You could be my IT consultants, you know, whatever. I know you never go for the jokes where I can temporize it like that. And I note to self right there, just stop doing it. Okay, I will. Now, <laughs> notice 
the strong prophetic thing going on here when uh, Pharaoh's happy to receive them, to bless them, even to offer them positions to serve uh, in his kingdom. Choose the, the best of the land over the rest of the citizens. <laughs> You're welcome to work for the crown, if there anybody uh, uh, with some skills like that. And so he turns to Joseph to say these things, right? Because it's all about Joseph. The thug brothers, <laughs> uh, all of their favors from Pharaoh and the blessing is all hinges upon their relationship to Joseph and Joseph's relationship to Pharaoh. And it's just very much uh, like the scripture saying in the New Testament, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ. You see, they had a friend in high places, their brother Joseph, who speaks a good word to Pharaoh on their behalf. We have a friend in high places, our brother Jesus. He's called our older brother who speaks a good word to God, the Father, on our behalf. And so he's the reason and the source of all our good blessings. And no need to feel bad about that. You should feel relieved about that, that it's not, God's favor is not resting on you because you're a good person, because you try really hard. And you had your devotions this morning. It's good to have your devotions this morning and abstain from sin and to live the Christian life, but that's not why God's favor rests on you. That's because you trust in his son, and his son has put in a good word to the father for you. He's the mediator, and Joseph is the mediator, and he looks back and forth, you see. Verse 7, then Joseph brought his father, Jacob gets a private screening, and uh, here presents him before the king after Jacob blessed Pharaoh. It's crazy right there. Pharaoh asked him, well, how old are you? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they don't equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Sorry. Then, then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out uh, from his presence. Let's talk about this. You know, we've joked about it. If you're, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, uh, Jacob is a bit of a pessimist, uh, and uh, he's a Bible hero. But he, he really, I, I mean, and I've said this before. How many of you are glad that you can be a Bible hero and not get straight A's? You know, because of the grace of God. And so, one of his we call them growing edges, uh, is his attitude. He tends to see the glass, what, half empty. Yes. And he also has another saying, we're all going to die. <laughs> so, so and, and he also likes to say, everything is against me. <laughs> you know, and, and it's too bad, because of anybody in the Old Testament, he should be able to say, even though I really mess things up, God is still for me and blessing me. So be that as it may. Now, uh, Jacob is get, gets his own audience with Pharaoh. Why? Because patriarchs were respected back in those times, and the aged were revered. Uh, so here comes the blessing. Now, the way things normally go is that, and as scripture says in Hebrews 7 and 7, says, without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In other words, 
is very odd here that Jacob is blessing the king of Egypt. Now, that would be like the seminary student walks in a room with Billy Graham and gives him his blessing. You know, there's something not right about that. Uh, Billy Graham would be uh, humbled. He would, he would uh, receive that in a humble heart, you see. But that's not just really the way it works. It would be Billy Graham giving his blessing to the seminary student. So what we have here is a destitute farmer of, of sorts with his calloused hands, his leathery skin weathered from um, years in the sun bent over a little bit, leaning on a cane, weak, old, now totally bankrupt, doesn't have two pennies. They spent it all on grain. And as far as the world's concerned, Jacob's a nobody. But here's what God says. I like to use the nobodies in this world. I like to use the weak things to compound the so-called mighty things of this world, the despised things, the people the world loves to disregard. I like to use them to blow everybody's mind. And that's going to happen at the great renewal, whereas I prayed the first will be last and the last shall be first. The rulers of this world (laughs) will be on the other side of those who were oppressed in this life who will be sitting on the thrones. And that's a promise from God. Uh, So the irony here is only emphasized by the the really cool surroundings, an ornate palace and uh, Jacob standing before a throne. Maybe it's made made of marble and ivory and overlaid with gold, I would suppose. Surrounded by all kinds of top military brass, the powerful aristocracy is present. The ruler himself, the incarnation of the, or so it was said, of the sun god sitting on his throne. And God's nobody, this ancient man, is the one who, whom angels would applaud when he walks in a room, who has the power and influence and true honor and the ability to move the hand of heaven, if I could put it that way. The fervent prayer of the one who's right with God is powerful and effective and moves God's hand. As for the glorious ruler, he has no, none of that power. He doesn't even know the Lord. He'd be skin and bones. He'd be wrapped up like a mummy, like they like to do in Egypt. <laughs> and uh, without this man and his son, um, the seed of Abraham. So this, of course, is a fulfillment of a promise. I hope you caught it. Genesis chapter 12 When God tells Abraham, through your seed, the entire world will be blessed. Through your offspring, through your son, Isaac, and through his son, uh, Jacob, and his sons, and a messianic line. We always think, just we skip straight over this, because there's a fulfillment right here. The whole world is starving. The only one, the only one who can save them is Joseph, who is Abraham's seed. So the entire world that's starving and destined to die has to come to Abraham's seed. The whole world there is being saved and blessed according to Genesis chapter 12. It's fulfilled right before our eyes there. 
Now, after this blessing, and I suppose he blessed him in the name of Yahweh, and all kinds of beautiful words came out of his mouth. Uh, so the exchange begins, and he says, how old are you? And then uh, here it comes. You know, he, we get another peek at Jacob's uh, persistent problem with pessimism. Uh, on a good note, he says, I'm, I'm, a, I'm on a pilgrimage, uh, meaning, and, and this is not how the Egyptians thought of life. Uh, we're just passing through uh, the mindset of all Bible heroes. For here we believers, quoting Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, here we believers have no lasting city. This isn't our home. We're strangers and foreigners here. We seek the city that is to come, not built with human hands. Uh, so, yeah, he says I'm 130, and that probably got a pleasant surprise uh, from the audience there, a nice response there, I should say. And, uh, you know, the Egyptians hoped to live, I mean, the maximum was 110 for the Egyptians in that day and age. You know, when you, you see a talk show and somebody is, you know, they're super old and they're talking about their life and they, they, they start talking about, you know, I remember we didn't have a television because televisions weren't invented yet. And you just go, wow, that would be before 1927 and what the world must have been like. And everybody who hears that in the studio audience and even in the listening audience, just their heart just kind of opens up like, that's amazing. You look into their eyes and just think, wow, what have they seen? How life has changed from when they were a little kid to how they managed to live all the way up until this time. It's amazing. And so uh, here comes Eeyore. It's time. My years have been few, and my days have been difficult. Now, uh, my few years, by comparison, is probably what he means. My dad, Isaac, lived to 180, and my grandfather, Abraham, lived to 175. Now, that's something to talk about, but 130, sir, is just a drop in the bucket. So he gets one sentence to summarize his amazing life. He has an amazing life, if you've read Genesis. Um, and I just wonder if he regrets his negativity and that missed opportunity to glorify God. Um, yeah, the man who's, who has the living God talking to him, guiding him along the way, showing up in visions, not once but twice, maybe three times, making him promises, personal promises, God Almighty, Wow. Blessing him when he doesn't deserve it. Uh, one, note, uh, one writer said, nobody who will be coerced with Christ has any excuse ever in their lives to complain about anything, period. You see, I, I didn't hear too many amens, but <laughs> maybe you were thinking, yeah, that's an amen. However, I know I'm going to complain when I get out of here about, about something, you know. <laughs> Yeah, can you imagine where you could have gone and what's waiting for you and not because you're a good person but in spite of the fact that you're not? <laughs> that uh, should give us cause just to never complain and always be grateful. Uh, so he says, my years have been few. They went by in a, in a blink. 
And those years were pretty much miserable. Now, those, uh, that's what the word means. They're difficult. Uh, the King James nails it with evil. It has the meaning of <laughs> evil, disagreeable, malignant, and unpleasant, and sad. That's what he says. That's been life. Well, yeah, you know, we agree. Life goes fast. Even if you get 130 years, you know, our life is a vapor. Morning mist, the sun comes up, poof, we're gone. Even if you get 130, it just goes. Uh, but And we agree, life can be difficult, disagreeable, and all of that. But one commentator said he should have added, and my life has been disagreeable mostly at my own doing. <laughs> That's what, but he left that part out. Uh, yeah, he deceived his father, Isaac. Let's talk about it his life that was miserable just for fun and we're only going to get to one chapter tonight uh deceived his father isaac following his mom's prompt and then she blamed her son and said look what you've done you know but it was her idea uh stole his brother's esau's inheritance which made wild man esau who's described as a hairy hunter determined to kill him I would not want a hairy hunter determined to kill me. <laughs> Forced to flee to another country, start his life all over again, falls in love with this beautiful woman, Rachel. On the honeymoon, he discovers he's been duped, and he has her sister, who he didn't love and didn't find attractive. And now he's stuck with her, father-in-law said, for seven years. You work for me, for seven more years. I know you worked seven years for Rachel, but we have this custom, so just do what I say if you want her. Seven more years. So he worked seven more years. Well, he, he could have saw this coming because maybe he's thinking back in Genesis 29. This sort of sounds familiar. The older sister, Leah, was disguised as the younger sister, Rachel. And a few years earlier, he was the deceiver. He was the younger brother disguised as his older brother. Yeah, so what goes around comes around. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. He went on to marry both of them, which was a disaster. Uh, he didn't want to be married to, the, to Leah, uh, but he had to be. And so he was miserable with two wives and the sisters were vying for Jacob's love. They were rivals. And so they got into a baby-making war. And so they decided whoever gives him the most sons, he will love the most. And so they got busy. But Rachel couldn't have any kids. So she got a surrogate involved. And her sister said, that's no fair. Then I'm getting a surrogate. So now there are four women vying for his attention, and he's stuck in the middle of four contentious women. <laughs> I have enough wisdom not to say anything there, <laughs> except <laughs> in Proverbs 21 and verse 9, it says, better to live in a corner of an attic than in a spacious home with a quarrelsome wife. Now what about if they're all four of them are disagreeable. That's not going to be fun. Okay, moving on. Yeah. Unbelievable. 
But wait, there's more. He stuck working for his charlatan father-in-law. And I'm about done here. Wrapped up his miserable, difficult life. Uh, used and abused him for years. He has to deceive his father-in-law and flee in the night with his wives and all of his children. And those sons, those sons are the ten thug brothers, by the way. And he's going to flee in the night. But guess what he gets? He gets an email. Sorry, I did it again. (laughs) That says, hey, you, uh, we've spotted Esau, the hairy hunter, uh, at 400 hairy hunter friends coming in your direction and they don't look happy so in spite of all of this God blesses him gives him a vision right before he meets Esau God himself appears to him and wrestles with him more about that in a a minute now have you ever noticed that God describes himself as the God of Jacob we sing songs about it the Psalms have God's name the God of Jacob why well, that's to comfort our hearts. He's not called the God of David, is he? David was a man after God's own heart. I mean, we'd be intimidated, right? But if you call God the God of Jacob, you know what you're saying. You're saying that if, if, if he's the God of Jacob, then he can be my God too. Because he's the God of somebody who's super messed up. Super messed up. And, and, and didn't take advantage of all his opportunities. He fell short all the time. And God just keeps blessing him, blessing him, blessing him. He's the God of Jacob. And he seems to be proud of it. I'm the God of Jacob. He loves saying it. You know? Why? To, to encourage all the Jacobs, all the manipulators, all the deceivers. That's what his name means. But I can be your God too. Because it's not about you. It's about Joseph, you, the emissary, the mediator, Jesus. They're Joseph or Jesus, right? So let's speed through 11 all the way through 21. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Now, that seems to be the first name the surname, the given name of Pharaoh, actually, Ramses. Now, Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. So they were well taken care of. Put that in the back of your mind. He's living, Jacob's living in the lap of luxury right now. His boy is the prime minister, okay? Verse 13, there is no food, however, in the whole region, because the famine was severe, both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. And he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, give us food, why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I'll sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money's gone. So they brought the livestock to Joseph and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep, their goats, their cattle, and donkeys. And he brought them uh, through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. Oh, it gets worse. When that year was over, they came to him the following year 
and said, we can't keep this from you. We got to tell you the facts here. That since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to another. All right. We can pause there. The screen's going to go blank. Listen. What sounds oppressive and as extortion to you is not at all. And you have to hear those words uh, in the prophetic framework of what it's pointing to, and then you'll understand it. And so Israel is settled in the best part of the land, and, and for you to understand the deathbed that's coming up and what Jacob is going to say, you have to realize that he's doing quite well there. And so, well, here we have the main point is, is that the citizens of Egypt uh, are going to be completely subjugated under one master. And listen, with gospel ears, the whole place is going to come under one ruler for the saving of their lives. So every last penny and every last person is now spent on grain or given away um, for that dried foodstuffs, which winds up not in B of A, but B of E, Bank of Egypt. And for good reason, you see. Uh, when Jesus appears, which is this is what it's foreshadowing, and it's the only way it makes sense, when he appears, he's called the bread of life. At the second coming, the world is in much worse shape than that world of Egypt the, with the famine-like conditions, uh, you know. And Joseph is the only solution. And like that, Jesus, when he appears after the apocalypse, if you want to survive, it's everything is Jesus, the Lord of all. It's him and Christ alone. So yeah, worse than a, a famine, it's a supernatural world coming up, a supernatural worldwide uh, famine, droughts, nuclear war, earthquakes, plagues, cataclysmic natural disaster. The waters are poisoned. The earth is on fire. But then he appears. He takes his seat on the throne. He starts giving orders and restoration can begin. And there are survivors. And if those survivors are going to find a place of safety and abundance and renewal, uh, there's only one place to find it. And it's not on the throne in Egypt. It's on the throne in Israel. You see? And this is the picture that everything will become subjugated to the one on the throne, Jesus, and ultimately to God the Father there when he appears. And so that's why it makes sense. And why does it make sense that the throne will be in Israel? <laughs> well, because this is the place where our Lord manifested himself. 
he was born and it was to these people he made all of the promises about coming into the world to save the world. It's this place, Israel, where he did his miracles, where he taught, where he died for the sins of the world, where he rose from the dead, where he ascended into heaven and and where he sent the spirit, where the church was born, all in Israel. The revelation of uh, the Bible, all Jewish writers except one, 66 books, only one Gentile writer, and that was Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke is the only Gentile writer of scripture. And so, yeah, it just makes sense. Uh, And he made promises to his kindred people there. uh, I will exalt the nation of Israel and uh, you will be the head and not the tail on that great day. So every last penny, every last possession, all personal properties, private holdings, all of verses 14 through 21 will be rightly given over to him, the Lord of heaven, when he appears. So that's just the picture there. And by the way, he already, Jesus already owns everything. He already owns everything that you have, what is his, and he's given it to you and to us and to non-Christians as stewardship things, and because he's good and kind, and so uh, he's done that. Now, it doesn't stop with money and properties, then while he, when Jesus is reigning and ruling, all things are his and all people too. And so as Philippians 2 prophesies that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So of course, Joseph reducing the people to servitude is the kindest, most noble, most honorable thing that could ever be done to them in light of what it's prophesying. It's prophesying the world bowing the knee to one ruler whose sole aim is benevolence and righteousness and peace and our best interest. And so that's what it means. Jesus will reduce us all to what we already are, his servants, right? And so that's sort of the meaning there. A lot of people were uncomfortable before they hear that teaching with how Joseph just kind of keeps subjugating more and more of their lives over to Pharaoh and to um yeah, to Pharaoh's estate there, but really it represents what's coming. A dictatorship of grace and kindness, an autocrat who's filled with goodness, mercy, and love, and a despot who rules in righteousness and who's looking out for everyone's best interests. With one master on the earth, there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, because the one man in charge is the God-man, the creator of heaven and earth. Okay, we're almost there. There's a PS here, by the way, 22 through 26. Let's get through why the priest didn't have to. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they had a special deal going on. They already had a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from that allotment. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, see this through gospel eyes, here is seed for you so you can plant in the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. 
You have saved our lives. They don't sound oppressed. (laughs) They said, may we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. And and in this way, it's quite sweet and wonderful. You know, you're in bondage to the Lord, and I don't hear us complaining about that. Praise God. May I never be set free from my servitude to God. (laughs) Because in that day, I become a slave to sin and myself and the world. Uh, Verse 26, so Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth, 20% tax goes to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Let me just say that payment of 20% total tax due. Many today would be very happy with only 20% in total taxes. And so we just kind of see the laws that would be changing going forward. Now let's finish the chapter 27 to the end. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and it was beautiful and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. So God's hand is upon them, and Jacob is living really well. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 more years from when he was complaining at Pharaoh's place. And the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for him to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, I If I found favor in your eyes, so humble, put your hand under my thigh. It's a thing they did. Abraham did it. And uh, it's just this personal way of saying the thigh represented their strength and their future. And uh, just, just, just swear to me in this private, personal way. And, uh, and nobody had a good explanation for it, except there's a connection there of just the, uh, that personal vowing. If I found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Don't bury me in Egypt. That's what I'm asking. The kindness you're going to show me, and you're going to be faithful not to bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my father, it's a beautiful way to see death. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. (laughs) That Joseph swore to him, I swear, I swear. And Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. A few things I want to cover here because they're beautiful. Some insights here as his final days drew near. So even (laughs) with his pessimistic glass half-empty attitude. God gave him 17 more years uh, there. God's compassionate and gracious. And, you know, he let Jacob finish out his years uh, with 17 years from the time he met Pharaoh. Those little boys, his grandsons, are now in high school age. He gets to be with Joseph and walk around uh, Goshen being the father of the man who's ruling the then known world. And so he's got this kind of thing. You you know how Joel chapter 2, a famous verse, God's got this heart for his people who have been victimized and have suffered greatly. God has a tender heart toward his people who suffer. 
He says, I'm near to the brokenhearted. I'm near to them. I bind up their wounds. And so he rescues those crushed in spirit. And he doesn't despise people when they're just broken inside. He says, I don't despise a, a broken spirit like that. Well, Joel says, the Lord speaking, I will restore to you the years the swarming locust devoured from you. And we see that heart with God all through the, the Old and New Testament. And, and Jesus said, look, if you're going to if you're going to lose family members, your losses and crosses, I can make that up to you a hundred times in this life and in the life to come. It's really nice when it works out in this life like it did for him. 17 years out of care in the world. He was living in the lap of luxury as the father of the hero uh, in the story. Man, the prestige, the honor, the wealth. He didn't have one care for 17 years. Now, for 20 years, God just had made up for those 20 years, didn't he? And I think that the kind of life he was living, the last part of his life, blessed, really caused him to... It, it, the suffering of those 20 years paled in significance to the blessing and the joy that was his, which is a New Testament truth about all Christians where it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs any of the suffering. In other words, you're suffering the first 10 seconds in heaven Every bit of any suffering you've ever endured will be forgotten. First 10 seconds. It'll make anything you did go through in this life, the first 10 seconds, just look like a walk in the park, almost like a trip to Disneyland, although that's not very pleasant actually anymore. <laughs> that's more torturous actually. <laughs> So, yeah, same goes with us. And so, yeah, Jacob's heart now revealed by his comments at the end. Very, very uh, good to take to heart. Here he is enjoying the over-the-top blessings, but he's not corrupted by it. And we just see his last comments, where his heart's at. You know, he he enjoyed the perks of Egypt, uh, and he lived in Egypt, but Egypt didn't live in him. So when he's about to die, he says, do me a favor. One thing, swear twice to me. Swear again. Don't bury me here because this Egypt land oh, was kind of nice. I had a good time. But it can't hold a candle to the promises that God made to us and about our land and about our people. Bury me where God has blessed and covenanted himself with our people. And there's a place there, and that's where I belong. So all the treasures of Egypt, the luxury and the notoriety, it just didn't impact him. So he sang the song, When I Come to Die. When I come to die. When I come to die. Give me Jesus. You can have this world, Jacob says. The one thing I want, it's Jesus, Yahweh, Jesus, one and the same. Jesus said that. I and Yahweh are one. 
John chapter 10, verse 30, in case you think I'm exaggerating. All right, there you go. So uh, Jacob worships leaning on his staff. We close with this. Now, this is amazing, and if you know your Bible, you know that this gets quoted in the New Testament as in the Hall of Faith, as we call it, Hebrews chapter 11, which is pretty amazing because in the chapter it lists great accomplishments that uh, happen because of faith, right? So it's quite an impressive list. It says, by faith, lions' mouths were shut, fiery flames were quenched, people were raised from the dead, kingdoms were conquered, and then there's Jacob's name. And it says, and guess what? And, and Jacob, worshiping, leaning on the top of his staff. Ooh, a little anticlimactic, don't you think? I mean, it's like Daniel in the lion's den, and you got all of this stuff, and resurrections from the dead, and you got that man, Jacob, leaning on his staff and worshiping God at the end of his life. Some commentator said, not only is it miraculous, it's probably greater than raising somebody from the dead. Why is that? Well, you know, think about this. Here he is in the lap of luxury in Egypt and all of the 17 years of wow. And at the end of his life, he's worshiping, leaning on a staff. Why does he lean on a staff? Oh, because he had this encounter at a place he named Peniel. Peniel means face of God because he had a theophany there. Theophany is when God shows up in human form. And in the Old Testament, when God shows up in human form, that would be called the pre-incarnate Jesus. So our Jesus, who has always existed, showed up and confronted him and he wrestled with him to gain dominance over him. And when the Lord saw that Jacob wouldn't give up, wouldn't submit to him, he said, sorry, Bubba, but I'm going to have to win. So he popped out his hip, dislocated his hip, and said to him in a weird way, congratulations, you just let me beat you awesome. You know, it's a confusing little thing. And he says, from now on, we're going to call you Israel. We're going to change your name from Jacob, deceiver, to governed of God. That's what Israel means there, you see. But he had to pop his hip. And from then on, he had to lean on a staff because of his hip. So at the end of his life, when he's surrounded in the lap of luxury, he can snap his fingers. You know that he's got a tendance. Well, he doesn't have a need in the world. And all he wants to do is lean into his weakness, that place of where he, the cross, the place where God broke him and changed him. That's where he's worshiping God and turning his heart away from Egypt and back to his brokenness, his surrender, the time where he was humbled before God and began to realize that in weakness, God's power is made strong. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this life of Jacob who just 
a marvelous man of God and we can relate to him, God, because we're broken in many of the same ways. And you held him fast, God, and so that right to the end, his dying words are going to be about you and worshiping in weakness and humility, powerless, totally dependent on you, with no good thing to bring in merit of his own behavior, except that you wrestled him and won. We thank you, God, for taking us down to help us to surrender every morning and every noontime and every evening to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.